No other object has been misidentified as a flying saucer more often than the planet Venus. Really? Even the former leader of your United States of America, James Earl Carter Jr., thought he saw a UFO once. But it's been proven he only saw the planet Venus. I'm a Republican. Venus was at its peak brilliance last night. You probably thought you saw something up in the sky other than Venus. But I assure you, it was Venus. I know. What I saw. Your scientists have yet to discover how neural networks create self-consciousness, let alone how the human brain processes two-dimensional retinal images into the three-dimensional phenomenon known as perception. Yet you somehow brazenly declare seeing is believing? Mr. Crickenson, your scientific illiteracy makes me shudder. And I wouldn't flaunt your ignorance by telling anyone that you saw anything last night other than the planet Venus. Because if you do, you're a dead man. You can't threaten me. I just did. Something happened to me last Thursday when I was driving home. I had a couple of miles to go. I looked up and saw a glowing orange object in the sky. It was moving very irregularly. Suddenly, there was intense light all around me. Welcome to Dulce Midnight Radio 3. Summer's here. The US government is doing UFOs again. Uh, Congress held a meeting the other week to discuss the uh, phenomenon. And this is synced up quite nicely with a great uh, three-part series that's just been posted over on um, Diabolique, Diabolique magazine by our guest tonight, uh, Robert Scavala. Uh, you can find him at Robert Scavala on Twitter, and I'll include a link to his uh, series in the show notes. And I'm joined once again as well by uh, Bradley from Michigan. Beamish, how's it going? Doing good, dude. Beamish, that's a, a terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do apologize. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's basically it's. Um, this is the part where I usually fall apart after I've done the intro because I always have trouble segueing to uh, where we're actually going. So do you want to try and give it a go, Bradley? Yeah, sure. This is guest uh, Ghost Stories guest host Bradley from Michigan, B-Mish. Uh, we're here with Robert Skfarla and Redacted, I think. No, or can, no, I say, everyone, can I say everyone, Matt? Yeah, everyone knows I'm called Matt now. It's fine. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, I'm going to pop it on back to Matt here. 
Um, so yeah, basically, the, um, Robert, this art- article um, is about a UFO cover-up live, which was, uh, I'd never heard of it before. It was a TV show that aired in the 80s. So do you want to uh, give us a, a flavor of what the series is about and what you're concerned with throughout it? Yeah, so UFO Cover-Up Live was a live TV special that aired on October 14th, 1988. Um, It came allegedly live from Washington, D.C., and it went out on syndicated stations throughout the United States to about 130 different stations in various cities. The purpose of the program, you know, ostensibly was to reveal the startling truth about Uh, government cover-up of UFOs. In fact, promotional materials use the phrase startling truth. But what it actually did was um, it set UFO research back quite a bit. Um, And it was part of a series of, I don't know if you want to call them public disclosures, but it was part of a series of screw-ups that would happen over the next year, year and a half, that led to a fracturing of the UFO community. And I think... That 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 you mentioned there about it setting back the uh, disclosure movement, that was something that um, chimed with me and certainly my um, experience of dealing with this, this current disclosure movement because that seems to be ultimately what happens with most of these efforts. They, uh, they're incredibly counterproductive in the end. Would you say that's fair? Um, Absolutely. So in the first part of the series, I mentioned the fact that it, UFO Cover-Up Live um, exists on a continuum, you know, a spectrum of, you know, various actions undertaken by government or quasi-government agencies or representatives where they try to, or they claim they're going to reveal information about UFOs. So anyone who has like kind of a basic history of UFOs might be a little bored with this, but if you go back to the beginning, uh, 1947, led to things like the Robertson Panel and the Condon Committee. But ultimately, what we found with those is that nothing useful came out of it. For example, Edward Condon, the head of the Condon Committee, um, stated there was no scientific basis to continue research. When the United States terminated its official program for investigating UFOs, Project Blue Book, it said that there was no evidence to suggest that the sightings were extraterrestrial. Extraterrestrial. I can't say that word. Um, but then we get to things like um, Deep Throat and Watergate in the 70s, and it changes the nature of how um, the country looked at disclosure as a concept. It was very big in that mm-hmm. decade. So going into the 80s, um, a lot of people were very cognizant of the fact that you know there were people within government who wanted to give information. And then UFO Cover Up Live sort of played off of that by promoting um, initially it was supposed to be, or at least in the advertising, it mentioned one intelligence operative, but the show actually gave us two and that tied into other things that were happening at the time, such as majestic 12, which also offered, you know, a cosmic water gate, so to speak. I hate that phrase so much. <laughs> and it was used by a lot of people like Stanton Friedman, who was involved in the MJ-12 research, and other researchers at the time. They were talking of Cosmic Watergate. So, yeah, it certainly seems like there's a kind of a few recurring tropes. I hate the word trope, but um, anytime there's a big push for disclosure, there are immediately a lot of very, um, shall we say, spooks with ambiguous motives who suddenly appear 
and start offering to reveal some great sort of transcendental truth. It never seems to quite arrive there. They, they seem to constantly string these researchers along. Every single time. Yeah. I, I, yes. I love the story in the uh, part one of your uh, article series that talks about the, uh, the producer going on boat rides with a spook. <laughs> yeah, so that that is contentious because no one knows if it actually happened. Um, it's one of those things that I included in there because it's mentioned in two separate sources. One, uh, a producer of the show I spoke to, Kurt Brubaker, who initially brought it up. And then it's also mentioned in a book that was released in the 2000s, allegedly from one of the intelligence operatives connected to UFO Cover Up Live and possibly MJ-12 and much of the disinformation that was being spread through the UFO community at the time. But it's just one of those anecdotes that sort of, you know, takes on a life of its own, I guess, in the UFO community. If you read a lot of the stuff that was coming out um, in newsletters and zines in the UFO community, um, stories like this would get told and retold over and over again. So it's one of those things that's hard to verify. Unfortunately, you know, it's it's not a detail we can find hard evidence for. It also seems to be a running theme to the UFO community. Exactly. Um, the purpose of UFO Cover Up Live, like I said, was to publicly disclose the existence of UFOs. The two central people in that production were um, our UFO researcher, William Moore, aka Bill Moore, and Jamie Chanderay, his research partner. They were primarily the ones who were being tasked with providing research to the show. Um, the show came together in the summer, I believe, of 88. The year prior, um, or sorry, in the two years prior, the production company responsible for the show had, you know, they'd gotten big hits with live TV specials. There was the notorious um, Geraldo Rivera special, The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults, which was ultimately a bust, but a huge success for TV. And then the following year, they did another one, Return to Titanic Live with Telly Savalas. So they were looking for, you know, pretty much any contentious subject that they could get. Um, they would actually release another one at the end of the year, the search for the Green River Killer, which didn't really, it was a flop, much like UFO cover-up live. But the purpose was just to find, you know, kind of really wild information and put it in front of the public so that they could exploit this. And UFO researchers love being exploited if they can get attention. So to what you were saying, Matt, before, uh, this is something that recurs a lot because in the UFO community, these people want attention and they're willing to take it from anybody they can get it from. Yeah, there's um, a quote actually that you included in the piece uh, by Vic Marchetti. Um, he wrote the, uh, the yes. CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. I won't read the full thing, but it's, it's very uh, piercing. It's very insightful. Uh, he says, from the intelligence point of view, ufology would be an easy field to disrupt. The people in it and their combined attitudes, their paranoia, their gullibility, make it easy to feed a few things at a time, a little bit here, a little bit there, to get everybody running in circles. And that sort of that uh, chimes with something you said, Robert, which is it does seem like the purpose of a lot of this stuff is to just drive people crazy basically well so yeah i'm a big disinformation mm -hmm. guy um a lot of the stuff i've been doing over the last two years either through my personal writing for my blog mondo americana or the diabolique series 
um, or just posting on Twitter is a lot of American history is just disinformation. It's stuff that governments put out there to whip people up into a frenzy for various reasons. And it's not always, you know, spooky. We can look at something like um, the Vietnam War and the second attack at the Gulf of Tonkin, which was um, fabricated so that we could get America into the war. We needed uh, pretext, much as we always do. It's something that always seems to recur. We see it again in the 2000s with the link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein, which never actually existed. Um, And I mentioned both of those in my article um, or series of articles as examples of disinformation, because this is ultimately what a lot of the UFO community is about, disinformation. So much bad information flows through the UFO community because of the government. And it's not something that's recent. It goes back literally to the very beginning in 1947 with um, the crash at Roswell. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the uh, uh, disinformation and Iraq war thing because I – just on the concept of conspiracy theories, the topic of conspiracy theories, the Iraq war – like Iraq has WMDs is probably the most consequential conspiracy theory of the century, I think undebatably. Correct. Perpetrated by the government. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that with like the UFO people seem to just do it to themselves, with some he- with well, some they, help. Yeah, they want to believe. You know, exactly. it's that X Files expression. I want to believe. They're willing to um, take information from sources on the idea that this will help them achieve their goal. So frequently, that means they'll just accept it from just about anybody without looking into their background. Um, in this piece in specific, you get someone like Paul Benowitz, um, who I bring up and I know you've discussed in prior episodes, but Benowitz wanted so badly to believe that he was willing to trust the Air Force. Um, and specifically, uh, someone who worked in the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, Richard Doty, and the information ultimately did drive him crazy. And it's something that we see recurring over and over again in the UFO community and even more broadly, specifically today with the various, I don't know if you want to call them psychological operations, influence operations, but we see it with um, UAPs, we see it with Havana Syndrome, we see it with all kinds of things that that are being released or have been released. I think that's um, pretty interesting as well that, that you bring in Havana syndrome because now when it comes to the UAP thing, just like with Havana syndrome, the actual explanation, such as it is for what's going on that comes from the government seems to be switching. So initially they were fully unidentified um, aerial craft. Now they could be drone swarms. Yep. And just like with Havana syndrome, initially it was some kind of futuristic weapon that was possibly Russian or Chinese. Now it could be crickets. Now it, now the CIA came out and said, I think there's nothing to it at all. There is no Havana syndrome. And it all kind of feeds into this notion that the point is that um, it's just confusing and, and crazy making. No, absolutely. I mean, so there's a phrase within the military, and I know it gets brought up, I believe, in Mark Pilkington's documentary for Mirage Men. It's also mentioned again in um, Adam Curtis's um, hypernormalization, but it's the concept of perception management and how uh, an organization, and typically this is the military when we use this phrase, it's how they steer the perception of the public. And it's something that goes back, um, you know, as far as I can remember, um, at least to the beginning of the 20th century with people like Edward Bernays and propaganda, there are different ways to phrase this, but ultimately what it is about is steering a community in a specific direction. 
And um, one of the things that's great about Americans is that we don't have a coherent set of beliefs or an even overriding ideology. Um, Americans have many different bizarre beliefs, and you can use those to craft different campaigns. Um, so we see something like what we're seeing with UFOs or Havana syndrome. They're just building off of this. Um, they're building off of this aura era. I don't know what to phrase it as, but um, this era of conspiracy theories post Trump. Yeah, and that speaks to something that I've been thinking about uh, when it comes to the the way the ufology ufology community is um, pinning all their hopes on this this current apparent transparency that's coming from the government. We're now on the other side of a pandemic where the response was um, in, you know, inadequate to say the least. Uh, we're coming off the back of Trump as president, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, and there basically the government has no credibility anymore, but for some reason, this certain aspects of this, uh, ufology community are still insistent that this time we can trust them when they say that they're going to deliver the goods, you know? And the, the messengers for it too, like people like Luis Elizondo and Chris Mellon are also like the opposite of trustworthy, mm-hmm. like in every objective measure, like precisely, I, I just, I do, it's insanity. I don't understand it. Like I didn't realize that the, I want to believe thing was that strong. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you look at what's going on with Lou right now, in many ways, it mirrors what was happening with MJ 12, where allegedly government informants were leaking information. Um, What I argue in my series of articles, and specifically in the third article, is that um, the information coming from MJ-12 was probably coming from Doty, uh, much as the information that was used in UFO Cover-Up Live, a lot of it being built around MJ-12, was also coming from Doty. We know that Doty is a a mischievous trickster figure within the UFO community, and he's been this way for decades because he's released all kinds of bad information. But people keep returning to him because in America, there's this deference to authority. You want to believe someone within the government has these secrets and is going to give them to you. That that is a great Um, point. If if there's one thing that Americans across the board kind of do, we worship authority. And the UFO community specifically has a long history with – they have problems with boundary policing. They always want to bring authority figures in, whether it's um, cops to do investigations, um, whether it's um, government officials to give them information, whether it's, you know, bunk scientists to validate their wildest theories. Or Congress doing hearings about something. I don't really know what it's really about. There really wasn't much in that hearing. Yeah, I know. It was, it was very dull. I was uh, painting a t-shirt last night while I was listening to it, and I kind of just – they all just blended together. I just don't understand, like, what this is about. It's- Did you see the video that they pled? Yes. I, I made a joke on Twitter that it was basically the uh, – Congress was watching the type of videos the Fox Network would stitch together into compilations in the late nineties <laughs> because that was the quality of what we top were top ten most extreme UFO sightings. <laughs> UFOs behind the scenes. Even when they slowed that thing down, I was still like, "What the fuck am I actually?" It took me quite a while to see the the bit in the sky that they the, the little silver sphere thing. Um, yeah, right. it's just a little silver sphere thing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I. I don't 
I just don't care, man. <laughs> like, there's a billion of these. Yeah. But, well, so it's useful if you think of it in the sense that people in the UFO community want – they need evidence. Right. So they're willing to take very poor examples and blow them up into these, you know – these bombshells. Um, I believe just the other day, the website, the debrief yep. dropped a video, which if you watch it, it looks like birds yeah, or something like that. Like birds. And they've had a tendency to do this in the past, uh, both the debrief and the UFO community. Um, there was that infamous Batman balloon yes. that went around for a while that people believed was a that UFO. That was one of my favorite so ones. The UFO community is willing to take any minor, you know, piece of evidence and make it into, you know, a definitive example of you. As they are with, it's just that's not how evidence right, works. As they are with, like, uh, assuredly, that's why the UFO community loves authority figures because it gives them some credibility. Right. Exactly. They're desperate for credibility, so they'll take anyone, including Lou, who has openly admitted, you know, in the time frame when he started working on the UFO project, he was also allegedly involved in counterintelligence in the UFO community, which would be suspect if you actually thought that through. Yeah, for one second. Like, it's... Man. Especially given the history of people like Dodie and exactly. Bill Moore. Given the fact that, you know, there's been infiltration of the UFO community in the past by yeah. intelligence. Did, or even the involvement of, like, the CIA and NICAP. I was just going to bring that up. Speaking yep. the work of someone like Jim Bru uh, Jack yep, Brewer. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. I didn't realize, like, when uh, Jack announced that book and that I remember, I remember seeing him say that the CIA may have created NICAP. I always thought the CIA drove NICAP into dysfunction like they did with other political parties and stuff at the time. Right. That blew my mind. I started thinking about this stuff way differently then. Just for um, listeners who might not be familiar with this, what is NICAP? Do you want to explain that, Bradley? No, you'd know better than me, man. <laughs> Okay, so NICAP was another investigative body. I mean, there are many different investigative bodies that rose up during the um, 50s, 60s, and 70s, but it was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. Right. So much as other organizations, it was still doing the same type of research. It was based out of Washington, D.C., so it had a semi-formal um, structure in the sense that it seemed like it was more legit than other institutions that were doing it like MUFON. And in fact, it had uh, one of its founders was Donald Kehoe, who was heavily involved in spreading the UFO mythology. And um, it's just, it's another example of one of those institutions that rise up in a period of lots of UFO coverage that isn't actually really contributing a whole lot, but it seems like it. One of the, one of the things from Jack Brewer's book that really stood out to me, because I didn't realize how big NICAP was compared to the Mutual UFO Network MUFON. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure yeah. the numbers in Jack Brewer's book were at NICAP at its peak was like 44,000 members, and MUFON has like 4,000 members. Right, and the work it was doing may have been better than MUFON. MUFON hasn't exactly been notorious for having good research. Do they even do work? Um, so they do. I, I've actually spoken to members of MUFON who try to make it seem like what they do is legit. And the fact that Congress has been taking um, some of their research, um, at least right. in the run-up to this most recent hearing, is a little questionable. Yeah. But I mean, if you're going to look to like a UFO research group, NICAP was much better than MUFON. Yeah. So yeah, just to bring it back to your um, series, Robert, um, there's 
quite a lot of stuff, especially in the second part, that I have heard here and there before, and I never realized it came from the show because when it when UFO Cover Up Live was actually released, it, it tanked in the ratings, and um, kind of both believers and skeptics didn't really care much for it. But there's a section here where you mentioned that the the secret government operative feeding information to the the show's producers. Um, he says that there is an alien on Earth who is actually a guest of the U.S. government, and he's living in a secure bunker somewhere. I I had heard that before, but I didn't realize it came from this show. So it's quite interesting to think that even though it was a failure, really, as a piece of um, entertainment, lots of the claims still kind of filtered out and percolated through the, the UFO community all the same. Absolutely. One of the things that's interesting about the show is there isn't really much written on it. Um, the most I could find is typically like references to it in other books. So it's referenced in the, um, the four books that have been written about Paul Benowitz, Greg Bishop's um, Project Beta, Mark Pilkington's um, Mirage Men, Adam Go Rightly's Saucer Spooks and Kooks, and Christian Lambright's X Descending. But it doesn't one of the things I found is that it just gets very kind of like scant references here and there. They don't delve deeper into it. And I actually, uh, at one point recently got to speak with Pilkington and he said it just, he didn't have room to fit it in. So I think one of the things is that it seems like this minor thing. And in many ways it is, it wasn't a success in, it was building off of information that was already out there um, with regard to MJ 12. But there are other things that are thrown in there, like the EBE, the alien, that Falcon, the one intelligence operative, refers to that uh, made it out elsewhere and have kind of been repeated and repeated again as, you know, these weird anecdotes regarding the UFO community. Um, but one of the things that sort of defines UFO cover-up live is the information that is on the show was building off of, like I was saying before, pre-existing claims made by Bill Moore and Jimmy Chandray for Majestic 12. I mean... I, there was one time I heard um, last September I saw John E. L. Tenney at a UFO conference in Michigan, and he was telling a story about um, the Kinross UFO incident in Michigan, where basically mm -hmm. uh, the two U.S. Uh, AF pilots like are sent to intercept a UFO over Lake Superior, and uh, it's just like the X Files: both dots on the radar screen come together and they both disappear, and they're never found. Um, he was talking about. When, when he started researching it, he realized there was a discrepancy in the way that um, one of the guys who disappeared, um, Robert L. Wilson's name was written. And it was just because the, like some of sometimes it was Robert L. Wilson. Sometimes it was a different like middle initial. Sometimes the middle initial wasn't included. And it was just because everybody else was copying each other's research and they weren't actually doing their own research. And I think that definitely... Uh, carries over to i guess any subject matter really right i mean so one of the things that you see in the books that have been written about this i'm going to reference adam go rightly's saucer spooks and kooks for Sweet. a moment and there he connects it to other conspiracies conspiracy theories that were prevalent at the time um mj12 pops up in the danny casalero saga because one of the individuals involved michael and I'm probably going to butcher his name. Um, Recon it's Reconosciuto. Um, sorry, I've, I've spent 
weeks and weeks trying to figure out how to pronounce <laughs> this guy's name. Yeah, so that's what I'm referring to. Um, he brings in elements of Majestic 12, like he references it in regard to um, the octopus. Majestic 12 sort of gets its tentacles into many different things because it's a very pliable conspiracy theory by the way it was set up by more um, Chandray and their intelligence operative, Doty. Um, because one of the things I reprint in the second article is uh, it's a flow chart um, of how they describe how MJ-12 worked. And the way they say it works was that information was flowing into MJ-12 from another secretive organization, Project Aquarius, which itself was getting information from the Defense Intelligence Agency and information was coming in to the DIA from DARPA, Area 51, parapsychology research units, and all of these other organizations. So you can make this into whatever you want it to be based on how they've built this. Yeah, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of. Exactly. One thing I wanted to uh, touch on real quick is um, he's never really talked about very much from what I've seen, but Charles Berlitz. Oh, yeah. He co-authored multiple books with Bill Moore, uh, ex-Army Intelligence. You bring him up in the article series. But he's also the guy who wrote the book about the Bermuda Triangle, Atlantis, and the Philadelphia Experiment. That went also with Bill Moore. Right. Now, one of the things, like I haven't looked too deeply into him Same. yet, but it's one, of the, it's one of those pieces where it seems interesting because I believe the first book Bill Moore is co-credited uh, co on is The Philadelphia Experiment in 79, if I remember I correctly. Right. Um, and then the following year is ultimately the book that makes Bill Moore a star and kind of establishes the UFO mythology within America. Um, on the Philadelphia Experiment, Berlitz was the primary author, and I believe um, Moore gets a co-credit, yes. but yep. it flips with Roswell Incident, yep. where Moore is the primary name on it, and Berlitz is um, the supporting author. And the Roswell Incident is actually the reason most people know of Roswell. Um, the event did happen in 1947. The newspaper clippings went out, you know, about flying saucer, and then it was a balloon, whatever um, the government was trying to spin it as. But then most people forgot about it until Moore's right. book became a bestseller in 80. So the Berlitz connection is interesting because it suggests that Moore may have had connection to intelligence earlier than many people recognize. He was writing a UFO zine in the 70s, so at some point he would have had to have found his way to Berlitz, and that connection hasn't really been explored by anybody, myself included. So it's something that I think maybe I or another researcher should definitely pick up at some point. With When it comes to someone like... Uh, Paul Benowitz and even this guy Michael uh, Riconner Shooter Shooter <laughs> weeks and weeks of reading about this guy and I still can't say his name Man, that's, it's, <laughs> that's as you said that's the show at this point yeah yeah mm -hmm. basically um, but yeah I find Rika I'll call him especially very interesting because he actually popped up and started spreading I think do you remember the story the Maury Island incident Bradley Absolutely. With the uh, Chris, Chris Min and everything, yeah. Yeah. So Rico says that he, um, I think either his uncle or his dad 